Hello folks, this is going to be a special episode of The Federalist Files. I will be covering uh, the new $900 billion spending bill that was just passed through our Congress, uh, attempt at a COVID relief. It has seemed to uh, get itself some scrutiny, bipartisan uh, scrutiny pretty much across the board because of certain payments that are going to uh, foreign countries, it seems like the, these payments, it's a small $600 for each individual uh, pay, taxpayer as long as you fall in a certain tax bracket. So $600 uh, seems after these, what, the last bill maybe six months ago was passed. Since about six months ago, even I think it's even more than that. It might be more like eight or nine. But after that many months of waiting, $600 is not uh, sufficient does not pay a sufficient enough for people to pay their rent, pay their bills, uh, pay for groceries, what have you, especially if they've been laid off from their jobs. So there's a lot of complaints pretty much across the board. Doesn't really matter what uh, party you're in. It passed through the House of Representatives, I think, with like a 300 to 100 vote. And then this bill passed through the Senate with only six dissenters, which is really uh, it's impressive. Uh, the six dissenters... If I could find, I don't think I have them, but it's, uh, I think it's Ted Cruz, uh, Mike Lee, I know is one of them, Rick, Rick Johnson or Rick Scott's the guy's name. Let me see if I can find it here, but I'll get to it. I'll end up getting to it. I'll find it eventually here. Let's see. Uh, if I can get my computer to work, I guess I'm not, I'm not going anywhere today. seems like the internet's not going dissenters to the COVID bill. I think it was Ted Cruz, like I said. Uh, I know Bernie Sanders must have passed it right through. But it's going to be $908 billion or I think a 900 yeah, 908 from what I understand. Uh, bill, it's got about $600. And you, that's another thing that that was mentioned is it's something that was actually agreed upon with uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as well as as well as Ted Cruz. They both said this bill was around six thousand. It was like five thousand five hundred ninety-three pages long, <laughs> so it was way too long. And and it was given to the senators yesterday uh, in the middle of the day, and it was supposed to be read read within three hours, and then there was an expected vote on it. So the opposing in the upper chamber of commerce uh, of Congress, is in the Senate, they call it. Uh, there was six dissenters. There was Cruz, Rick Scott of Florida, Marsha Blackburn, Mike Lee, Rand Paul, and Ron Johnson, all Republicans representing their individual states, uh, which doesn't surprise anyone that it's all Republicans across the board. And one of the reasons to even begin with was just the fact that they didn't get to read the five thousand five hundred page. A piece of legislation and on top of that that is the longest piece of legislation ever written the longest next to that i think is something like 2000 pages but i'll get to it so just to start i have a wall street journal article and it's a comprehensive breakdown of everything in this 909 billion dollar spending bill i will have it in the description below mostly this entire video is going to be dedicated to that and then at the very end i'll have some really small stuff i'm still going to have a thursday uh current events video so tune in for that because there's a lot of stuff that i've been leaving on the back burner that i was actually going to cover today but then this this bill passed through and it is um 
and the bill's so egregious that I have to, I have to cover it. I have to let everyone know. Uh, I've, I've seen, like I said, bipartisan. Whether it's it's any social media, whether it's the news, there's pretty much bipartisan backlash from this bill because of certain uh, allocated and appropriated funds that really didn't were nonsensical and they were unrelated to what was needed at this time. So. First, to start off, you got direct payments, and and Wall Street Journal article, it'll be in the description below. Direct payments. The legislation would authorize a second round of economic impact payments following the checks Americans received in the spring and summer at a cost of $166 billion. Uh, Households would would receive $600 for each adult and $600 for each dependent instead of $1,200 and $500, respectfully respectively in the first round mixed status households where some people are ineligible non-citizens would get payments based on the number of eligible people in the household as opposed to being shut out uh, as they were in the first round the payments would be based on income uh, like last time I think if you grossed over 75,000 then you weren't getting anything once you or once you hit 75,000 they had some sort of prorated system where you'd be getting less and less and less until you got to 150000 and then you wouldn't get anything. So that's the way – this one's going to work the same way. Now, what's interesting so, – so Republicans, this is the issue between the two parties. You have Democrats are just complaining because mostly all the complaints I've seen from the Democrats have nothing to even do. And I'm not talking about uh, individual people that are Democrat from the Democrat Party. I'm talking about politicians. It is – all of their issues that they have with this bill is the fact that it's so long is one and then the other thing is that they didn't have the time to read it which makes sense how are you supposed to vote on something that you're not even going to read or you don't even have the people that work for you read a lot of these uh, politicians they're actually dumber than regular citizens they're not intelligent individuals they probably read at average rates a lot of them i'm not gonna say all of them i'm sure there is a lot of them that they just have their people that work for them in their cabinets their individual cabinets or on their teams their political teams their staff, essentially, they will read it and then they will tell and tell them what it's actually about or write a summation of it and hand it to them because there's so many other things that they have to handle that they don't feel like they should have to read any bill. And this is the reason that they have these huge bills. Another reason they have this, this uh, bills like this that are 5,000 pages long is because it's the, it's the standard or rather the saying, don't ever let a crisis go to waste because there is a crisis and you need to get this passed. For individual uh, Americans, since Americans need aid, what they will do is they will add onto this package a bunch of other things that are redundant to the American people. They are pretty much trivial. They are things that the American people don't need. And they will add on all that stuff and they will pretty much hold hostage the money that's needed from Americans in order to pass a, a Democratic or a Republican agenda. That is, that's something that's done on both sides. So they, they end up passing these huge packages because they legitimately could not get it done otherwise unless if there's a crisis. So so then you also have to think at the end of the day, are these, some of these crises actually created to pass more legislation that's going to take further freedoms, freedoms away from us and fund foreign countries and foreign enemies of America. You have to think about that as well. Uh, because when, when they go through, it's, it's like I've explained many times, the leaky bucket a theory when you put so much money in this bucket it will find a way to somehow leak out into other things and then it'll be given back to you the money that they're giving back to you is your money but it's not the same amount that you originally put into the system so yeah so that's the direct payments there and then they have jobless aid as well 
And uh, so workers would be eligible to 300 a week in federal unemployment subsidy. I think be- before it was something like uh, a $600 unemployment a week, which really screwed everybody because uh, small business owners, people would not come back to work if they were getting paid $600 a week because people that were, were actually getting paid more on unemployment than they were at their regular job, especially if they were working minimum wage. As with the prior aid package enacted in March, gig workers and others who don't ordinarily qualify for benefits would be eligible for jobless aid. The money is available through March 14th. The legislation would also extend to 50 weeks the amount of time for which workers may claim benefits through both state and federal programs. Most states typically uh, provide 26 weeks of jobless benefits. The cost of this enhanced unemployment benefits are going to be a projected $120 billion because it's projected because they don't exactly know how many people are going to go out and claim unemployment now after this. So we're extending this legislation another 50 weeks for workers to claim state and federal programs. That's over, that's a pretty much a full year we're going to do that. Most states and state programs are a half year of having that unemployment. They give you a half year to or 26 weeks to uh, get a new job. So this is something I didn't finish before. I was mentioning the Democrats, they're... You know, they're annoyed because they have to read this bill or whatever, and it's not enough time. But the Republicans on the other side, the ones that are complaining, they're complaining about a lot of these things. So so the one thing that they were complaining about is the fact that now illegal uh, non illegal aliens are going to be getting payouts, it seems like, because they're saying ineligible non-citizens, which to me seems like illegal aliens, are going to get uh, be getting paid out now in certain states, I would guess. Uh, they will be getting paid out like everybody else. That's one thing they're probably not happy about. And then it's the spending going to other countries. That doesn't really make any sense. But that's something the Democrats are not complaining about, is the spending going to other countries. Now, individual Democrats that vote, I'm sure they're probably not too happy about it. But the Democrat Party in itself, the machine, the Democrat machine, they don't really care for it. It's okay for them. And then Republican Party, there's establishment Republicans that aren't complaining about that either. And they passed the bill right through. The Senate, I mean, the Senate is primarily... Not not by much, but they have a small majority that's Republican, and look look who passed it through. It was a bipartisan pass-through of this bill, and the only opposers were six Republicans, and they were uh, kind of like the Tea Party or the most conservative Republicans of the of the group. Uh, Blackburn, I know, uh, Ted Cruz, and what's his name, and Mike Lee, I know they're all heavily conservative. Same thing with Rand Paul. Rand Paul is much more like libertarian-based, but very similar, so... Then next, you got rental assistance. You got the bill provides twenty-five billion of assistance to tenants uh, that are that are behind on their rent. It also extends until the end of January, twenty twenty-one, a federal eviction prohibition they're gonna have. So you can't evict people, I guess, until January twenty twenty-one. So you give it about a, another to the end. So you give it about another month and a half worth of uh, relief there, and you're gonna be giving some money to people that are behind on their rent. It's weird because, to me, it seems weird because if they're behind on their rent, then that means that the owner of whatever the business or whatever the building is, the, the landlord, he's also behind on his bill payments, but it seems like there's nothing to support him here. There's just to support people that are the tenants. Now, uh, child care. The bill includes $10 billion in grants for child care providers and $250 million for the Head Start program. I'm not exactly sure what the Head Start program is. And so you got schools next. The bill provides $82 billion for public and private K-12 schools as well as colleges. Of that, the bulk would go to $54.3 billion fund, uh, billion dollar fund for public schools, while $22.7 billion would go to public and private higher education with $1.7 billion 
set aside for historically black as well as tribal and Hispanic serving colleges and universities. Uh, specifically, the bill includes $11 million for the National Technical Institute for the Deaf, $20 million, uh, the Deaf, $20 million for the uh, Howard University, and $11 million for Gallaudet University. Gallaudet University, I think, has something to do with deaf and, blind, deaf and blind kids. I'm not sure exactly, but I think so. And then uh, Howard is a historically black college. So what you're looking at here is, I think that in a lot of these bills you'll see, and I'm going to explain them, there's a lot of wokeism going on, there's a lot of uh, uh, diversity and inclusion type type money being passed on to uh, minority communities across the board here, and then I'll go on to explain this later, they're going to be prioritizing in certain states uh, minority communities in getting the virus uh, vac vaccination before other communities, they're going to prioritize them ab above everyone else. So then, what I got here is this $54 billion in, in fund public schools, this is something that's been done many times, it's the guise of putting money towards a school program, the money gets given or allocated to a town or to a state for school programs, and then it ends up being put in the pockets uh, to pay for other things rather than it's it's like when you take uh it's like when you take a gallon of water and you look at your pool and you throw that gallon of water into your pool you can't find that gallon after that said and done that gallon is just now part of the pool so when they put this money into the public school system it really just gets part it gets thrown into the state as the budget and it just sits in that budget and whether they actually decide to spend it on the school systems or not that is up to their discretion and the same thing, I, I don't really understand how pro, uh, higher education facilities need money or need any type of funding considering kids are all still probably paying as they are. Now they're not even paying for room and board if they're working, if they're doing school from home. So they're really saving money in the higher education field, the universities. That's why I don't really understand the bailout there. Uh, these kids are still paying the same tuition fees, except they're probably, maybe they're not paying room and board. But still, there's definitely saving going on from the uh, from the colleges because now they don't have to run their university buildings. So there's a, to me, there's no reason. I think a lot of this stuff is special interest groups when they give money to people like this. It's just paying off people and their their donors really. So testing and tracing, uh, states would receive 22.4 billion for testing. Uh, tracing and COVID-19 mitigation program of this, $2.5 billion would be sent as grants uh, targeting rural areas and communities of color. Once again, that's another wokeism policy. So what we're looking at is we're looking at money giving to individual state government programs. And like I said this before, it is just going to go into the state budget and they will use it at their discretion whether they want to use all the money or not. They could use it to pay for other things. It's kind of like when Planned Parenthood, when, when people give money to Planned Parenthood or the abortions or, or when the federal government funds Planned Parenthood, then everyone goes, oh, well, they they provide uh, prenatal care for women and they do this and they do that. And uh, you go, yeah, but that money still, you can take money out of one program and put it into, appropriate it for something else. It's, it flows evenly within an organization if you have money. It's not like, oh, that money specifically is allocated and set aside for this specific thing. That's not the way that business works. It moves around and they incentivize uh, abortions because that's actually how they make money at Planned Parenthood. They don't make money on any of the other services they give. And yeah, don't get me wrong. If if you told me, hey, Planned Parenthood is going to get rid of abortions, uh, would you still? I, I I would actually be willing to still. Uh, I would I would be willing to give government funding to them if they were willing to to eradicate abortion services. And I think many conservatives actually feel the exact same way at this point. They just want to stop uh, the bloodshed. Now, vaccines. 
Uh, states and federal agencies would receive funding for vaccine distribution. About $20 billion would go to Biomedical uh, Advanced Research and Development Authority, or BARDA, for uh, BARDA, I guess is the acronym for it, for procuring vaccines and therapeutics. Nearly $9 billion would go to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention and states for further distribution for the vaccine, and $3 billion in is designated for the national stockpile included in those sums is 300 million that is directed to go to high risk areas and to communities of color. So once again, 300 million is going to high risk areas and communities of color Another woke policy. Now, uh, this, all of these things. So we, we passed a 909 billion or it's a 900, I think it's 909 billion dollar bill. Now the, a lot of these things here, could have individually be pa- been passed easily, easily. Now the the, or they could have been they're passed in the regular budget every single year. How much money goes to the CDC? How much money goes here here? When it comes to uh, federal government funding, there that is e- that's something that's actually easily passed through. That is something that bipartisan usually is agreed upon. It's some of the other things that aren't agreed upon. So they're putting this. I don't really understand. From my perspective, and then they then they can I guess they build it up so they can tout that it's a nine hundred and nine billion dollar spending bill. They can tout the fact that they got it done, and it looks like a lot of money for the American people. Where when you actually look into uh, the composition of how it is broken down, it's it's not consistent. You it's actually not a huge payout for the people. It's really a payout for the federal government to do their job. Essentially, it's a way to fund them, and then it gives you a little bit at the very end, the tail end here. And then it also it su- supplements some of these businesses that really don't need to be supplemented. Like I said, the big colleges to me, I don't think need to be supplemented. We could probably do without some of these colleges in our economy. And uh, now airline businesses is the next one here. Tens of thousands of airline employees would get their jobs back at least for a few months under the new bill, which includes $15 billion to cover airline salaries and benefits through the end of March. The bill also includes $1 billion for airline contractors, contractor payrolls. The bill also includes $2 billion for airports and airport-based businesses. So if you run like a small small convenience shop, I guess, inside of the airport, or you have a restaurant inside the airport, you'll get money from that $2 billion bill. And like I said, this is all things that, that you know, a lot of this stuff can go into the budget normally in a normal year. That's why it doesn't really make sense, some of this stuff. Uh, the airlines, I guess, because they're so shut down and there's no one out there. But it's only going to certain, I think it's United Airlines and American Airlines, the only ones really getting money. I think the other ones are pretty set. I know they laid off and furloughed a lot of their workers because of this whole thing it's because it's across the it's across the world this this COVID-19 now banks the bill would provide 12 billion in support to small lenders focused on low-income and minority communities buttressing minority-owned banks and firms known as community financial development uh, institutions once again another woke policy right down the board uh, farms. The U.S. agriculture, sec- uh, agriculture sector is set for another multi-billion dollar injection in the new relief bill, which directs about $12 billion to crop farmers, cattle ranchers, and rural communities. So that's to help out the farmers. And rail and transit. And this, this one is pretty... This one, straight up, is just to help... Uh, big cities because they're deep in the hole. The same thing with places like New Jersey or New York, the rail and transit. The bill would provide $1 billion in relief to Amtrak aimed at helping the national passenger 
Railroad avoid further layoffs and furloughs of its workers. Amtrak receives a regular operating subsidy of around $2 billion a year for the from the federal government, but its ticket revenue was devastated by the pandemic and lockdown orders. The bill also sets aside $14 billion for transit systems, many of which are considering major cuts in service and layoffs. In New York City alone, elected officials say they need an immediate $4.5 billion infusion to stave off severe reductions in subway and bus services. The bill also sets aside $2 billion for the bus industry and $10 billion for state highways. So you're looking at a pretty much a payout for New York City. You're looking at a payout for a lot of these liberal or left-leaning uh, big cities, which pretty much all of them are. And who even knows at this point, now that people can work remotely and they can access the internet and the business that they're working for from home, who's going to actually be going back to business? So, so what we could be doing here is we could be uh, paying out all this money for this transit system, and then the transit system still will be unused. And then we'll just what are we going to do at that point? Are we just going to keep passing bills to keep them in business until we're assuming the business somehow comes back to New York? You already have so many. I heard something like 70 different corporations already moved out of New York, like big ones too. Now, small businesses. So this is the one that people would actually really care about. Small business, the $325 billion allotted to help small businesses includes $284 billion for first and second forgivable paycheck protection programs, which is that PPP loans and uh, expands eligibility for local newspaper and TV and radio broadcasters. The bill also includes $20 billion for economic injury disaster loans. That's very interesting. The one for where it says and expands eligibility for local newspapers and TV and radio broadcasters. I just don't understand how were they unable, especially the newspaper. The newspaper has been going out for a very long time, and that's that's what's going on here. Is we're watching these businesses that were before the pandemic were were going out. They were on their way out. They were ineffective. They they have been phased out with the times, or they were just ineffectively managed and ran. And now they're getting huge bailouts from the government. And this will just continue. They will continue to spiral. Uh, just like Ford and GM, they'll just continue to spiral down and then it'll be, again, we'll get at a fork, forked road and we'll try to figure out, are we going to bail them out again or are we just going to let them go? That's what I don't understand about the local newspapers, TV broadcast. I don't, what I really don't understand, TV and, and radio broadcasters, people have been sitting at home, uh, truck drivers are still driving, a lot of them listen to radio. I, I don't understand why they need a subsidy. <laughs> I don't. I just don't get the subsidy. It doesn't make any sense to me. And that's and they're talking about and now small businesses on the other hand. And there's nothing in here specifically in this bill that actually helps small restaurants out. And those are the ones that are probably being damaged the most uh, through the COVID nineteen uh, pandemic that we've had by the government. So U.S. Postal Service, we're looking at a ten billion dollar Treasury loan. And this is to add on to the $10 billion Treasury loan that the CARES Act passed already. Um, the bill loosens some of the strings imposed on the U.S. Postal Service from the CARES Act, which provided, oh, you know what it does? So this bill still provides that $10 billion, but now you don't have to pay it back. So it's only $10 billion from the CARES Act that was supposed to be paid, up, paid back by the Postal Service. Now the Postal, the postal Service is not required to repay this, uh, pay this loan back. So really now we're just subsidizing the Postal Service because they are not self-perpetuating and they cannot make enough money to keep themselves afloat. And and But in exchange, the bill requires the Postal Service to provide more information to Congress, including a plan about its long-term financial solvency 
uh, within 180 days of the bill passing and information about how it plans to use the funds and reports to the Postal Regulatory Commission. So they want to see some sort of, and this is, I'm sure this is probably Republican, uh, Republicans probably met in the middle on this one, giving them that money and allowing them to have it. But at this thing at the very end, this provision at the end is probably Republican driven because Republicans have been trying to get rid of postal service or, or saying that the postal service isn't effective for a very long time. So within the 180 days of, of getting this money, they have to provide financial fund information of where these funds are really going and they need to give this to the postal regulatory commission. Now, uh, if you want bureaucrats to watch over other bureaucrats, this will not work. The post, the postal service will continue to lose money until it is really. Uh, I don't really know what needs to be done. I don't know the remedy if it needs to be a privatization of the postal service, but I'm not really sure. They're just going to continue to spiral out of control and lose more and more money and further, you know, uh, dig themselves into a hole. Now taxes, and this is the very end of this, and then I have some more more stuff. I ha I'll have a visual too, just to break it all down. So taxes, aside from the PPP break, the bill would extend a tax credit for struggling employers who keep workers on the payroll and it would let recipients of certain tax credits qualify based on their 2019 incomes. In some cases, lower 2020 incomes would reduce their eligibility. The bill would also temporarily extend tax breaks for renewable energy, including incentives for wind energy and carbon capture. It also includes deductions for business meals, a provision that Donald Trump backed, but that faced criticism from Democrats as a subsidy for three martini lunches and indoor dining during a pandemic. Uh, lower ex excise taxes on beer, wine, and spirits that were set to expire December 31st will permanently be extended, and tax incentives for investing in, in low-income areas and hiring workers from disadvantaged groups would be extended for five years. So that's another woke policy. I don't know. A disadvantaged group sounds very broad to me. Uh, what does that mean? What is a disadvantaged group exactly? So this is that was all in the Wall Street Journal. Let me try. I don't remember. I don't think it even had someone that wrote it. It just said Wall Street Journal article. I remember. I couldn't find an author for it. So next what I have here is it is the U.S. It's Associated Press release uh, by Andrew Taylor. But I found it in the... Uh, do I have the... I found it in the U.S. News. U.S. News Report. And I'll have, once again, I'll have that link for everybody in the description below. So, yeah, so to clarify, it was $909 billion in this spending uh, bill. They're, they're calling it $900 billion, but to be exact, it is that much. It is $909 billion. And what we have is, it is titled $900 billion COVID Relief Bill Passed by Congress, uh, sent to Trump to his desk to sign whether he wants to veto it or not people are calling for him to veto it actually because they're not satisfied with the payouts to other countries and i'll explain that i'll get to it now the government-wide approbation appropriations uh, bill was likely to provide at least at a last 1.4 billion installment for trump's u.s mexico border wall as a condition of winning his signature the pentagon would receive 696 billion uh, Democrats and Senate Republicans prevailed in a bid to use bookkeeping maneuvers to squeeze $12.5 billion uh, more for domestic programs into the legislation. 
The bill was an engine to carry much of Capitol Hill's unfinished business, including an almost 400-page water resources bill that targets $10 billion for 46 Army Corps of Engineers flood control, uh, environmental and coastal protection projects, and other addition would extend a batch of soon-to-expire tax breaks, such as one for craft breweries, wineries, and distilleries, which I was just talking about. And then it states it would also carry numerous clean energy provisions sought by Democrats with fossil fuel incentives favored by Republicans, $7 billion to increase access to broadband. I guess that's some sort of TV, maybe, or Internet. $4 billion to help other nations vaccinate their people. $14 billion for cash-starved transit systems. $1 billion for Amtrak and $2 billion for airports and concessionaries, which I've mentioned. Food stamp benefits would temporarily be incre- increased by 15%. See, that's really what I don't understand. So what, we're going to give more 15% more food stamps or people somehow more hungry that there's a pandemic? Uh, the Senate Historical... So this is the this is the big... T- the Senate Historical Office said the previous record for the length of legislation was the 2,847-page uh, tax reform bill of 1986, about one-half the size of Monday's bill that they just passed, which was like 5,500. <laughs> so our last bill was almost half. I mean, it's... Our biggest, and that's the biggest bill ever. And like I said, they said this, when they had to actually vote on what the purse was going to be, what the budget was going to be in the next two years, they were able to pass something. But what they did in this bill is they threw a bunch of other things that they weren't able to get done because now, they, like I said, they are, they are holding American um, relief hostage at this point. And this is all Americans' money, too, on top of that. It's not like... You know, it's not their money that they're just pulling out of their pocket and they're handing to you. That's not the way it works. It's our money that has been thrown into the system and thrown around and then they spit something back out at us. That's nowhere near what we're paying into it. Let's see if I have what it says here. The thing about the Pentagon doesn't really make sense. $696 billion, Maybe it's in the future, but it can't be from this bill because this bill is only comprised of $909 billion. I don't know where that came from. And then there's something for the wall for Trump to get him to, to vote in. I think Trump should, honestly, he should uh, veto this. And he should call for something that goes directly to the pockets of the people. And that's what the Republicans should have been calling for the whole time instead of paying out all these organizations. Because if you, if you think about it this way, if there are people that need... They should have pretty much business relief, and then they should have for the people, they should have relief. Those are the two things that they should have. They shouldn't be having all these weird little different incentives, stuff like that. They they make it like it's a comprehensive program, but it really isn't because then it, because what they do is they give the money to the state, and then the state just takes it, and they put it in their pocket, and they hold on to it, and they pay out whoever they want to. And and they're, they now become the arbiters. It's almost like uh, I've mentioned in my Federalist paper articles is the way the articles of confederation did not work because it extended its power to the states rather than the individual rather than the people themselves at large this is the exact same scenario they're giving the money to the states and they're expecting the states to use their discretion to give the money out and the states are just pretty much withholding the money and that's why it's a it's a terrible plan it's a bad idea across the board the money should go straight to the people if you're only going to give each person you know six hundred dollars or then based if they have a couple people in their family and this this i think i did the math on this too and I was I was adding it up, and it's something like six or seven thousand dollars can be given to each family after everything's said and done, and that would definitely beat what their plan is here, where they're going to give you six hundred dollars if you take this bill and you divide it equally amongst how many families are across the uh, across the country, which I think is like one hundred and eighty three million. So this is a breakdown I have here to. And if you are watching on YouTube or Rumble, I am about, or if you're listening right now, I'm about at 30, 
31 minutes and 30 seconds into the video. And this is a breakdown on the Wall Street Journal. It shows you in the billions how much is being spent on each individual thing. So small businesses are getting $325 billion. Uh, direct checks are $166 billion. Schools, $82 billion. Unemployment benefits, $120 billion. Vaccines, testing, and tracing, $55 billion. Transportation, $45 billion. Uh, nutrition and agri agriculture, $26 billion. Rental assistance, $25 billion. $12 billion to support uh, small banks that serve low-income and minority communities. And $10 billion for child care, $7 billion for broad, higher broadband access. So that's all sourced from the legislative text. It's amazing that people were actually able to break it down this quickly, considering it was 5,000 uh, pages long. So there's even more. Because when I added all this up, I added all these billions up, and I said this only equals uh, 100 and what is it, 873 billion. And then if you add, you know, Trump's wall or whatever, that's 100 and I mean, 874 and a half billion, which doesn't really make any sense. So, so where's the other, what is that, another uh, 35 billion? Where is it at? So what I have here is a visual up on the screen. And this is people, this is the big complaint from a lot of people. We have $85.5 million going to Cambodia. We have $135 billion, uh, million, 135 million going to the the International Narcotics Control Enforcement of Burma, another country, Burma. And we have one point four eight $2 billion going to the Indo-Pacific Strategy for Asia Reassurance Initiative Act of 2018. Then we have $130 million going to Nepal. We have another one here, and this is on page. And these are all from page of this legislative act, and I'll have it. It's up on the screen, but 1,462 from that page to 1,500. And then Ukraine, we're going to have $453 million going to them as well for just assistance. And these are things that they could not pass, I guess, in the budget beforehand. And, and really, if you're going to come out with a bill for the American people, it should really be aimed towards directly towards the American people. And then you should worry about things after that. We shouldn't be worried about the globalism idea of people all around the world rather than Americans. And that's something that the Democrat Party... The establishment from them, the establishment from the Republican Party really aren't tweeting much about. There's only select few individuals that are uh, in the Democrat Party. I've not seen anybody except for maybe actually Bernie Sanders. But I mean, he's not even he's technically an independent. I think he's been saying that it's not fair that we're giving all this money to other countries. I think I think it was him, but I haven't seen anybody else other than him. And then, you know, there's a bunch of dissenters that are those those six senators. And there's others as well, especially in the media. There's a lot of them. So now here's another visual here. I'm not sure exactly how true this is, but this has other programs as well on it. I already mentioned Nepal. I mentioned Cambodia, Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, Burma. I mentioned all those. And then there's one, there's 600 million to Sudan, 14 million to the Kennedy Center. And that's like the Kennedy's Arts Center. They were trying to, I think they had 25 million go to them in the last bell, to be honest with you. Uh, I don't really understand. There's somebody running that Kennedy Arts Center that is making big time money and, and they need political, they must have given some sort of political donations or they have some sort of blackmail material on somebody that's on Capitol Hill that they keep getting money given to them like that. And then we have 10 million for gender programs in Pakistan, 1.3 billion to Egypt, uh, 453 million to Ukraine which I mentioned, $33 million to Venezuela, $3.3 billion of grants to Israel, 
and then 3.36 billion to Bill Gates. I'm not really sure how short, how uh, clear all those are. I'm not sure if any of those are really true, other than the ones I already mentioned, because those I actually read from the legislative document. But that may be. Those are other things. I'm sure in the next couple of days we're going to get more and more information as people read this 5,000 page document on what is going on, where we are paying off random countries in the United States from from the United States taxpayers' dollars. So what I have here is I have a Daily Mail article just to go off of all the woke things that are in this in this bill here. It is minorities at risk. Minorities at risks at risk are going to be uh, considered critical groups uh, by Francis Mulraney. Oh, it reads, Revealed. Uh, every single U.S. state is being advised to consider ethnic minorities as critical groups for vaccination with half prioritizing black and Hispanic residents over white. Now, half of U.S. states mentioned racial equity in their plans for vaccine rollout of these 12 states specifically mention efforts to reach diverse populations. Well, to begin with, the idea of the word of racial equity and then only giving it to minorities and prioritizing them over other over other groups in and of itself is inequity is not equity. So California, it is it is counter narrative to what they're saying. So California, Louisiana, New Mexico, North Carolina and Indiana are among those who listed equity as the key principle for vaccine distribution. New Jersey, California, and Kansas will focus on improving access to the vaccine by targeting transportation issues. Uh, New Mexico will focus on Native American communities. Many states will be focusing on their communication to black communities who have shown an increased hesitance to take a vaccine. Oh, hesitance to take a vaccine. In the U.S., black and Hispanic people uh, are almost three times more likely to die from COVID-19 than whites. According to, I don't know what study that is. They don't have a study up here for that. But they have, yeah, because there's been an increased hesitance because a lot of black communities are saying, why is it that we have to take it first? Is, is there a setup here? <laughs> really, that's what they're saying based on history. Um, I can't blame them for saying that based on history. It is very odd that we are we are putting or prioritizing certain ethnic groups. We're not going by ages of groups we're going by ethnic groups where really we should be looking at i guess age and mortality rate so here what i have is a visual states focusing on black and hispanic residents for vaccination rollout all the blue states there are the ones that are giving greater preference to minority communities whereas all the red ones are not giving greater preference to minority communities meaning they are just treating everyone equally so what it looks like really is is the electoral college map a little bit a little bit it resembles that so and then this goes on this article here it says yet if states decide to give racial minorities priority it could potentially lead to a reverse discrimination lawsuit that would slow down distribution to all now this isn't a reverse discrimination this is just the discrimination lawsuit there's no such thing as really like a reverse discrimination because the idea of discrimination in these weird merriam webster books and all these lefty-leaning sites and these fact-checkers, they say discrimination is, you know, one majority group, one powerful group, you know, discriminating against a smaller minority and weaker group, where, whereas discrimination is just when you when you are... Discri I, can, I can look up exactly what it is. When discrimination is when you are... Oh, here, I got the reverse discrimination thing here. Reverse discrimination, Merriam-Dexter, uh, let's see, or legal... 
A reverse discrimination refers to discrimination against members of an historical majority or advantaged group. The term grew in popular use in the U.S. in the late 20th century as legislation required special emphasis be put on offering advantages to minority populations such as women, women, uh, blacks, and Hispanics, and the disabled. So what they're entailing here is that discrimination can only come from the side of the majority or the side of what do they call them the advantaged group and anything that comes from another side is now considered reverse discrimination they're somehow not the same thing which just isn't true so uh, a recent piece in the Journal of the American Medical Association from experts Lawrence Gostin of Georgetown University, Harold Schmidt of the University of Pennsylvania, and Michelle Williams of Harvard University noted that the plan may not pass any t- challenge made at a Supreme Court. The group suggests that instead there should be a racially neutral uh, vaccine allocation criteria that would focus on geography. Ge- geography, uh, socioeconomic status, and housing density, but still work to help minorities. Uh, Nationwide, there have been more than 117.4 million cases and 313,000 deaths. So the reason they're saying that is just because it could go to a Supreme Court case. I guess you can try to uh, go equal protections clause, say certain people are being treated unequally, and now I guess I guess the media as well as as well as the politicians are trying to really go out there and fight against the systematic racism idea that was coming out through the through the BLM riots, I guess at this point to try to counter that. That's why they're coming out with these specific policies that they're going for. Now, it would make much more sense to look at geography, socioeconomic status, and housing de- density. That would make sense because across the board there could be. Um, there could be across the board all Americans that have a lower socioeconomic status. I'm sure are having a higher death rate from from this. Their mortality rate is probably increased. And then we should also look at groups like older people that have like a way higher uh, death rate. Those should really. And right now, I don't know why we have we're having we're having our politicians taking it first. Uh, protected classes of citizens, it seems like, are taking it first. And then I think the healthcare professionals and then the old people, and then I don't know what's going to happen after that. I mean, I'm not in a rush. I'm not sitting in line waiting to get one. So I don't really necessarily to me individually, I do not care. I just think it's another, it's just another way that the left tries to, and and the establishment Republicans try to kowtow to uh, minority communities and act like they care. So what I have next, and, and essentially really what it is, is it's racist policy that they're trying to push through. They're trying to put certain groups above others, which is in and of itself, that's racist policy and treating everyone differently. So what I have next, and this will be the very last of what I will be discussing in this one here. I don't want to keep it too, keep you here too long. I have after colluding with Biden, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives raids Polymer 80. So what I have to begin with here is I have the ensuing Second Amendment uh, Second Amendment encroachments that we're going to see from the government coming down the pike. This is just an example of that. So I'll begin here with this article, the federalregister.gov. I found this. The ATF came out uh, last week saying that stabilizers or braces or arm braces, it's something that wraps around your forearm if you're shooting a pistol. To begin with, it was used by... Uh, communities where people were impaired or paraplegics, people that could not move their legs. Uh, 
or people that were, like I said, impaired in some sort of way to have this arm brace. Let's say if you only had, if you were an amputee, you only had one arm. This arm brace would help supplement your shooting hand if you wanted to still, you know, own a gun or go to the range or defend yourself. So that was the point of having this stabilizing brace to begin with. So what the federal government's looking to do, the ATF, and I don't think the ATF can really even pass any type of, they can't just start classifying things as NFAs, National Firearms Act. They can't just start classifying certain gun modifications or certain uh, add-ons or additions to guns. They can't They can't just now classify them as NFAs. They need to be registered, and now you need to pay a $200 tax. So what they do here is they write a memo about how that it should be further looked into. It's pretty much giving you a precursor for what the Biden administration will do if they get in there. And it states, and this is their own document here coming from the ATF, it states, and I quote, until that process is separately implemented and absent a substantial public safety concern, ATF will exercise its enforcement discretion not to enforce the registration provisions of the NFA against any person who, before publication of this notice, in good faith acquired, transferred, made, manufactured, or possessed an effective stabilizer-equipped firearm, this document is not an administrative determination that any particular weapon equipped with a stabilizing arm brace is a firearm under the NFA to the extent that the ATF director subsequently issues such a determination. The ATF director at the direction of the attorney general plans retroactively to exempt such firearms from the collection of NFA taxes provided those firearms were made or acquired in good faith prior to the publication of this notice. The contents of this document do not have the force or end effect of law and are not meant to bind the public in any way. This document is intended only to provide clarity to the public regarding existing requirements under the law or department policies this guidance does not alter in any way the department's authority to enforce federal law and is not intended to does not and may not be relied upon to create any rights substantive or procedural uh enforceable at law by any party in any matter civil civil or criminal so essentially what they're saying is hey this is what's this is what we are looking into we take our orders from the attorney general we cannot really pass laws we're not going to pass this law but we're talking about it right now and if if you now and and this is like a precursor to the law because he's saying oh if you if you now after this memo was produced if you now go get yourself a stabilizer then that's now considered in bad faith and you now can be considered you can be considered a felon if you don't uh, register it under the NFA, if this law ends up passing out, we're going to retroactively grade the law to right now when our memo is written, which does not really, I don't know how that ends up holding up in a court. I do not think it does. So the, uh, what do I got have now here? So now what I have is ATF's longstanding and publicly known position is that a firearm does not evade classification under the NFA merely because of the firearm is configured with a device marketed as a stabilizing brace or arm brace when an accessory and a weapons objective design feature taken together are not consistent with the use of an accessory as an arm brace that is not to stabilize a handgun when being operated with one hand such weapon configured with the accessory may fall within the scope of the NFA, particularly where the accessory functions as a shoulder stock for the weapon. Accordingly, ATF must evaluate whether a particular firearm configured with a stabilizing brace bears the objective features of a firearm designed and intended to be fired from the shoulder and thus subject to NFA on a case-by-case basis. So pretty much just subjective from what it seems like to me. As the purpose of the NFA is to regulate certain weapons 
likely to be used for criminal purposes. The ATF cannot ignore the design features of a firearm that place it within the scope of NFA regulation simply because the manufacturer characterizes or markets a firearm accessory in a manner that does not correspond to its objective design. So they're saying that by putting this accessory, putting this brace on your gun now, it can turn it into an NFA weapon, National Firearms Act weapon, you need to register, it needs to get it put on a list, and you have to pay a $200 tax per NFA weapon that you have. And uh, so so now they're saying by case by case, their own subjective determination, they can determine whether your gun is now under the NFA. It is, and, and that could be something that now you have a pistol and then you have a stabilizing brace on top of having that pistol. Now they're saying that that turns it into a, a uh, like a rifle because it's like a shoulder stock for the weapon and you have more stability when you shoot it. So automa- now it's almost like a rifle that is under the NFA. And rifles are not under the NFA, but that's the best way I can explain it because... Yeah, it's, it's like now it's a machine gun, <laughs> really, because that's what an NFA uh, classifies a lot of the, or or if you have a su- suppressor, that's another thing you have to classify under the NFA. There's a lot of things. Now they're talking about extended magazines. I've covered this before at length. Uh, I've been pretty, I've been pretty um, extensive about my coverage of all of the gun control that's going to come down the pike coming from, and this is the ATF kind of giving a warning out. That we're going to do it. And now they're saying that by putting that stabilizing brace on that gun, it completely changes the design of the gun and what it's meant to do and the scope of the weapon, which really isn't true. The gun is meant to function as a gun, whether you put a, a arm brace on it or not. It does, it's not like it makes it fully automatic. It still shoots single shot. The only difference is now is there's more stability when you fire. There's There may be some more accuracy. You may be more effective in shooting. And what they think is the purpose of the NFA is to, and I quote, to regulate certain weapons likely to be used for criminal purposes, end quote. First thing is these arm braces, these stabilizing braces, this is going to be used by nerds that like to go shooting at the range like there is with anything like video games, like comic books, like uh, certain TV shows. You like, if you like Naruto, certain, some people, there's dorks for everything. So there's dorks just like there is with shooting guns, just like there is with, you know, even sports like playing golf, certain things. There are dorks for everything. So people that you're going to find with these braces, it's not going to be people that are trying to use them for criminal purposes. It will be people that are dorks that like to go to the range and try different uh, accessories on their guns. It's just like car dorks, kind of. How you put a, put a spoiler on the back, you add a new muffler, it sounds a little louder. You put a cold air intake to increase the horsepower. It's very similar that way. So next what I have... So that's, that's, that's the gun control that they're pretty much letting you know preemptively what's going to happen here and that's all going to be a biden thing they're going to pass that through law probably they're going to attempt to the atf does not have the power to pass that through law that's why i don't even see them putting it out there and going oh well in in fair use they shouldn't even put this memo out there until the law is passed really they're letting everybody know what they're going to do so now what i have is i have i have polymer 80 so polymer 80 is they make these lower receivers uh, they don't even make the receiver really. They just make a very, very rudimentary version or or a not built up receiver. And then you yourself would have to, if you have any, if you have any uh, experience in gunsmithing, then you will be able to make it into a receiver. And it's it's technically legal and it could be shipped from your, because it's not considered an actual upper receiver. It's just parts to it. And you actually have to have some sort of gunsmithing expertise and some sort of a sense of a professional training in order to do it. So technically they can be shipped through the mail because the only part that can't be uh, shipped through the mail 
in terms of firearms if you're getting different parts barrels stuff like that the only thing that can't be shipped is the receiver that's the only thing that's what brings the the gun or brings the uh the round into the chamber and that's why it is banned because without that you really can't function a weapon so federal statute Let's see. Okay, so in a 2017 determination letter for one of Polymer's 80, Polymer 80's most popular products, the PF940C unfinished pistol frame, the ATF explained, and I quote, as a result of this FTISB evaluation, the submitted PF940C is not sufficiently complete to be classified as the frame of a receiver or of a firearm and thus is not a firearm as defined in the Gun Control Act. Other Polymer 80 ATF determination letters concerning various unfinished frames or receivers date back to the Obama administration in 2015. According to reports, the ATF rated Polymer 80 due to its sale of what the company calls its buy-build shoot kits. These kits contain a Polymer 80 unfinished pistol frame along with other parts necessary to complete a pistol. Uh, despite its previous acknowledgement that the unfinished frame is not a firearm, ATF has taken the position that when the unfinished frame is packaged with other non-firearm, with other non-I guess firearm things, and then saying that it's a firearm, then it's considered a firearm <laughs> to them. Now, suddenly to them, and they've been issuing all these statements saying that it's not a firearm. And up here on the screen is what I have. That's a picture of what uh, Polymer 80 sells. That's for an AR-15. So what you see there is you see a part of a receiver, but it's really not complete. And you have all the drill bits and all the parts to complete it. But it looks like uh, it's pretty difficult to do so. So in certain states, you can build, you can attempt to try to build an AR yourself with the Polymer 80 kit. And now they are going to, uh, and, and like I said, you have to be highly skilled and you have to pretty much be a gunsmith in order to do this. And I think gunsmiths have to go and get their FFL or have to go and, you know, abide by all the law. I, th I think to be a gunsmith, you can't. I'm sure there's some sort of rule. I'm not, I'm not aware of it, but I'm sure there's a bunch of different rules as it pertains to gunsmiths, whether they can gunsmith. Because to be in possession of, of a firearm, you need a... Um, well, not really. To transfer the firearm over exactly for gunsmithing, I'm not sure about all all the backgrounds and all that information. I'm sure there's some sort of background check that all these gunsmiths go through. So the federal statute, and this is defining a firearm by its part, by uh, its parts here. And this is an NRA article. I'll have it up in the description. It is uh, defines a firearm in part as any weapon, including a starter gun, which will, or is designed to, or may readily be converted to expel a projectile by the action of an explosive. The frame of, or receiver of any such weapon in the code of federal regulations a firearm frame or receiver is further defined as that part of a firearm which provides housing for the hammer bolt or breech block and firing mechanism and which is usually threaded as its forward portion to receive the barrel so all of these things these um to classify a receiver provides housing for the hammer bolt not none of those things are going on with what polymer 80 sends out actually that's not so that does not classify it as a receiver thus it's legal thus that's why the atf has claimed it's legal many times until they decided to raid their facility uh like last weekend a federal firearms license 
FFL is required to commercially manufacture or deal in firearms further. Licensees must comply with background checks and record-keeping requirements when selling firearms. Well, that's just general general knowledge there. So, yeah, Polymer 80 manufactures what's classified by our government as not firearms. So what they should really do is they should uh, they should just if, if that's the way they view it they should change the law. <laughs> they should cha- just change the law so Palmer AD doesn't have to get raided by the ATF. So and and this this article goes on. Uh, most of what Palmer AD manufactures and sells are not firearms. The company specializes in unfinished frames or receivers. The items require significant expertise, time, effort, and specialized tools in order to be used to assemble a working firearm. Therefore, they do not meet the definition of a firearm under federal statute or regulation. As such, these unfinished frames and receivers are not subject to the same federal gun control attendant to firearms the atf has acknowledged this fact and then you know like i said polymer 80 has sent their products over the atf many times and they have their firearms technology and industry services branch to ensure their products are complying with the federal law so they did all the due diligence and then they still get raided by the atf and this is and not not only is this going on you got polymer 80 and then on top of that, you have now their, their look, the ATF's looking to crack down on braces. So it's just going to, and when they do things like that, it, it's the reason they crack down on stuff like this. It's to stop, it's to disable gun owners, regular, uh, regular law-abiding citizens from owning guns. That's the reason they want to classify anything under an NFA because no one wants to, first off, no one wants to be on a list. And then second, no one wants to pay a $200 tax just to get an accessory put on their gun or a $200 tax on top of the gun that they're buying. Nobody wants to do that. And then in turn, in in turn that deters people from going and buying firearms and that's the point that's the point having every single little step that gets added there's a reason that new jersey has some of the low uh, the lowest gun ownership rates in the country is because we have some of the strictest gun control measures therefore our gun ownership numbers are not going to be high because no one wants to have to jump through hoops to go buy a firearm where it's very it's much more difficult so then in essence we end up having a population that is unable to defend themselves or uh, unable to carry out their responsibility of defending their family. And that's really going to wrap this one up. So I'm going to be releasing this today. Thursday, I will be coming out with another another current events episode that's going to be much more politically driven in terms of different voter fraud information, things like that. So just an update for everybody. I tried, I attempted once again to put up an advertisement on one of my Federalist Files episodes, one of my Federalist Paper episodes that are really not politics driven. I was told because it's related to politics somehow, so it was taken down. So I got about a couple views off of just putting it up. But like I said, I'm unable still to to advertise because of everything that's going on in the election. I don't know if I'll ever be able to advertise again, to be honest, just because of everything that's going on with the big tech oligarchs and their control of free speech. Uh, so that's it. So please like, share, subscribe because of that. I would greatly appreciate it. Uh, drop the mic, as in my name, Mike DiMato. Let people know about the podcast. And that's it. I will see everybody on Wednesday, and you will be having another current events episode coming through on Thursday. Thank you.